0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. Well, 2nd Peter chapter 2, last week we started Um, 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you remember, at the end of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us about Scripture. He says, people didn't just come up with Scripture on their own interpretation. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, go back to verse uh, 19 of chapter 1. Um, He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed Influenced supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, wrote down what we have as Scripture. They were the true prophets, the true people of God. In chapter 2, Peter is going to introduce us to false prophets, false teachers. Now, we don't need to go on a long tangent as we begin this evening, but my question is... Are there a lot of false teachers in the world today? There's always been false teachers, but my contention is with the proliferation of Internet, Facebook, all of the technology we have today, they're just more pronounced. They've always been around. They're just, they have a bigger platform now because anybody with a phone and a live stream and a YouTube account can put anything out there for millions of people to see. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Peter's going to introduce to us the ominous presence of false teachers. The ominous presence of false teachers. So let's read this together. Notice how he starts. But but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Teachings of demons. And the latter times. Now when was when when, when did the late, when did the last times begin? When Je- yeah, yeah, when Jesus yeah, we'll just say when Jesus went back up to heaven the end times began. We're just closer today than we were yesterday. So even back in Paul's day and Peter's day, there were false teachers. Second Peter, I mean sorry, 2 Timothy, all these Peter's Timothys, Where, where are we tonight? 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths people aren't going to want to put up with sound teaching they have itching ears they're going to want to be told what they want to hear so the point is peter paul the bible there have always been false teachers and there always will be until christ comes back back in the old testament God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he gives them a warning in Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 through 4. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you've not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. So know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. If somebody comes up to the nation of Israel and says, Hey, listen, you can go after other gods. God gave me a word. I got a word from the Lord. Go serve other gods. What does God say to them? Don't listen to His words. Don't listen to Him. Jesus tells us what's going to happen also. Matthew 24, um, 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the Bible is very clear that false teachers, false prophets are always going to be around. They're always going to be around. Now notice what Peter says there in verse 1. How do these teachers normally bring in these destructive heresies. What does he say? Secretly. Secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Most false teachers are not going to walk in with a name tag that says, hello, my name is Wolf in sheep's clothing. They're going to be slick. They're going to be manipulative. They're going to be smooth talking. They're going to be personable. They're going to try to do this behind The scenes. Now notice what Peter says there. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresies. What is a heresy? Well, I think there's two types of heresies. There's probably more, but just kind of a general category. Um, Number one, I think there's a case where a new or an immature believer may hold to a false belief that may be peripheral or minor. Okay? So there may be somebody who's a new believer and they don't have all their theology worked out and they may have some minor weird beliefs. Okay? They may not have a full understanding of all of the doctrines of the faith. Okay? That's one type of heresy. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. The second type of heresy is this. A false teacher who promotes a damnable heresy that actually goes against Christian dogma and can send you to hell. Okay. Now, a damnable heresy is something that you believe that will actually, if you continue to believe that, it's not the gospel. It's not the truth. It's not the essentials of the faith. And actually, um, when those people came to my door, came to your door the other night Um, i told them to their face they were teaching a damn and i use the word damnable heresy because it's a heresy that sends somebody to hell if you believe it you got a false god you got a false gospel okay so let's talk about some examples of modern day heresies now let me just say this every modern day heresy has an ancient heresy there's no new heresy under the sun it's just packaged differently They've always been around. They're just packaged differently. Maybe some minor nuances, but I'm going to give you some heresies that have been around forever that show up today. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk historically like when in church history. Um, the first one is called Arianism. This is named after Arius. Um, this denies the completeness of Jesus' deity. Okay? This was condemned at the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D. This is the heresy that Jesus was created by the Father and it denies the eternality of Christ. Arianism. What is an example of modern-day Arianism? Anybody know what a modern-day Arianism is? Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, both. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the is Gabriel the archangel and that he was created. He's not equal with God. He was created. He's less than God. Jesus is not perfectly divine. They deny the preexistence of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. Now, that's a damnable heresy because you're not believing in the right Jesus. Okay, It's not, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a made-up Jesus. Okay, So that's one heresy, Arianism. Another heresy is what we call modalism. Modalism, it comes from the word mode. Modalism claims that there's one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. This is sometimes called Sabellianism as well as named after a heretic Sibelius who lived in Rome. Modalism. Okay, so the people that came to my door, the cult, I told them they were Sabellianism. I, I told them they were modalists. They had no idea what I was talking about. But here's what they told me. You guys tell me if this is if this is true, if this is right, theologically. They said, in the Old Testament, God was the Father. The Father became Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And Jesus became the Holy Spirit. I said, and all you were shaking your head like, no. That's modalism. Modalism says there's, there's one God which we believe, but they, they show up in three different modes. Okay, so instead of three distinct persons, it's one one God playing three different parts. Okay, so I'm one person, Sean. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, and I'm a son. But I'm still the same person, right? The Trinity is one God, but three distinct persons. Is the Father the same person as the Son? No. Is Jesus the same person as the Holy Spirit? No. No. Modalism teaches that they're all the same person, that they're just playing different modes, wearing different masks. Okay, So that's a heresy that goes all the way back, modalism. Okay, What's another heresy? Pelag- These are all weird names. Pelagianism. The Council of Carthage in 418 AD was called because a British monk named Pelagius was going around Rome saying that there was no such thing as original sin that humans are basically born neutral and that we haven't inherited a sin nature from Adam. Now, is that a heresy? Everybody's born a blank slate. You haven't inherited any sin from Adam. You're basically a product of your environment. You can choose to sin or not choose to sin based upon your environment. There's no um, sin that's been inherited from Adam. We're all basically neutral. Okay, yeah. Pelagianism. Okay. Okay. Another one is universalism. Uh, That's probably the most liberal and extreme view. That states everyone will eventually go to heaven. Everyone goes to heaven. Universal, salvation. There's no such thing as hell. Hell will not be populated. If hell is populated, it's with really, really, really bad people like Hitler. But for the most part, the vast majority, every single person is going to go to heaven. Universal salvation. That's a heresy, right? What does the Bible teach about hell? Pluralism. This is a little different. Pluralism says that everyone who obeys their particular religion is saved for each religion supplies an independent road to ultimate reality. Let me give you an example. If you're a sincere Buddhist, you will go to heaven by being a sincere Buddhist. That's all you know. If you're a sincere Hindu you will go to heaven based upon being a sincere Hindu. So it doesn't matter what belief system you have because basically we all, we all worship the same God. We're all going to the same place. We may just have different names for Him as long as you're sincere. Is that a heresy? Okay. Now, inclusivism... Inclusivism... Whoops... Everyone who obeys the general revelation they have based on their conscience are saved through Jesus, whether they actually repent and believe in Him. Now, there's some debate about this. I've got some people I know that actually would believe this. I've had some Facebook conversations with people who uh, say that they believe that If somebody does not have conscious faith in Jesus Christ and has personally repented of their sins and believed in Jesus alone, that they will still go to heaven based upon the light that God has given them. If they're in the deep, dark jungles of Africa and they look up at the sky and they worship the moon God, um, they will still go to heaven based upon the fact that God gives them enough light. I disagree with that. Um, I think the Bible is pretty clear that you have to have conscious faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we could go on and on tonight about all the different heresies that are around. But those are just a few. And we really don't know what heresies these people were introducing back in Peter's day because they're not listed. It just says destructive heresies. But in verse 1, what's the destiny of these false teachers? Peter is really, really clear about their destiny. It says what? They will, they'll, they'll have swift destruction. One of the key words in this passage of Scripture, chapter 2, is destruction or perdition or condemnation. The word really means eternal condemnation in hell. Okay? Now, here's something we've got to bring up. And we've talked about this before, but I'm going to bring it up again, and we'll talk about it throughout the night, and that is the issue of what we call apostasy, okay? Apostasy is a falling away from the faith. Apostasy is not a true Christian losing his or her salvation. Apostasy is a person who gave initial evidence of salvation, was not truly saved, but then denied the faith, thus showing they were never saved in the first place, okay? Because if these people, uh, these people's fate is destruction, is hell, okay? Maybe at one time they had sound teaching. Maybe at one time they'd given outward evidence of salvation. But what are these false teachers doing now? They are clearly, outwardly, purposefully knowing what they're doing. They are denying the faith. They're teaching heresy. And again, I think we need to make a distinction here between two kinds of people. I brought this up earlier. Number one, there's a huge difference between a new or an immature believer who's genuinely saved and has some weird beliefs or is an off in some area. We have a biblical example of this. Apollos in Corinth. Acts 18, 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You see what's going on here? Apollos was trained, he was a good preacher, he was competent in the scriptures, he was a well-qualified man to be preaching, but he was a little off, wasn't he? So what did Priscilla and Aquila do? They pulled him aside said, there's some things we need, to, we need to straighten out your doctrine here a little bit. Now, it doesn't say Apollos was teaching heresy. It doesn't say Apollos was teaching false teaching. It just said he was a little off. He didn't know about the bapt— All he knew was the baptism of John. He didn't understand the baptism of Jesus. He didn't, he didn't have the full picture. So um, that's an example that's one type of, like I talk about heresy, okay, an immature believer that doesn't have all their theology you know, in place. There's a huge difference between that and a teacher or a leader who knows exactly what he or she is doing and denying the faith and teaching heresies and leading others astray. They're doomed to hell if they don't repent. That's a hard thing to say, but what does Peter say? It will bring upon themselves swift destruction. In in verse 2, this is what gets kind of scary. Have you ever wondered? Like you you think about Don and I were talking about this the other night, about like false teaching. I I told her what I was going to be teaching on tonight, and we were just at the dinner table talking about it's always shocking to us how many people follow false teaching. Why why do these people do that? You look at these stadiums and they're full of people. These churches are full of people. What does Peter say in verse 2? What does he say there? Many, not a few, but many will follow what? Their sensuality. Namely, their sexual immorality. Romans 13.13 says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Sensuality is the word that Peter uses there. It's tied to sexual immorality. Ephesians 4.19, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here's the first mark of a false teacher. Sexual immorality is the first mark of a false teacher. Peter's very clear. Jude is very clear. If you start digging into, and we'll talk about the second mark here in a moment. Maybe I'll wait till we get the second mark and it'll make uh, make some sense here. What does Peter say is going to happen to the gospel? Look at what it says there in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The, the Christianity, the way of truth, the gospel is going to be maligned. People that are not Christians are going to look at that and say, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. That's weird. That's ungodly. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to put a blight on true Christianity. Because if it's false teaching, what's false teaching right next to Sound teaching. Both false teachers and sound teachers used Christian language, and they call themselves Christians. But to a watching world that doesn't know, what do they see? They see both those things side by side, and they're confused. Well, which one is true and which one's false? Because they look different, they sound sound the same, but they're different. And what Peter's saying is this false teaching is going to corrupt or it's going to impact or it's going to affect the testimony of the good teaching. So mark number one of a false teacher is sexual immorality. Number, verse 3, we see the second mark of a false teacher. Greed. Look at verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their greed. The primary motivation for most false teachers is to prey on others and get rich and live a comfortable lifestyle through manipulation almost like a pyramid scheme think about all the televangelists that you see that spout false doctrine these billionaire guys that drive around in these jet or drive around fly around in these jets they're at the top of the food chain in their circles and they're always talking about money they're always talking. Sow your seed into this ministry, you know. Sow your seed into my ministry, and you'll get your hundredfold blessing. All these types of stuff. But notice what they're exploiting. List the word there. They're exploiting you with what? False words. Now, what exactly were these false words that they were exploiting them with? We don't know exactly, but we can look at the context, especially next week when we get to chapter three. From the overall context of 2 Peter, we can deduce that these false teachers were denying that there would be a final judgment. Final judgment? Jesus coming back? Final judgment? There's no such thing as that. And because there's no final judgment, you can live however you want with no consequences for sin. That was probably the false teaching they were saying was, listen, this whole talk about Jesus coming back, this whole talk about a day of judgment, this whole, there, there's, you're not accountable. Live however you want. Engage in all types of, of ungodliness. So the top two things that characterize a false teacher are sexual immorality and greed. Think about all the televangelists you've seen and false teachers you've seen that have fallen. What was their downfall? sexuality, and greed. I'm picking on televangelists just because it's easy to pick on them, but I, I want you just to think about any type of false teacher. But are they going to get away with it? What, is verse, what does the end of verse 3 say? Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. There's the word destruction again. It may appear like um, you know, God's, not putting them in their place. It may appear like they're getting away with all this evil. It may appear like they're they're exploiting and manipulating and and just peddling this false doctrine and nothing's happening to them. And it may appear like God's judgment's asleep. But what's that text say? It's coming. It's coming. They're not going to get away with it. There will be a day of judgment. Okay, as we move into verses 3 through 10a, Peter's going to juxtapose God's previous judgment of certain people and God's previous salvation of certain people to to kind of illustrate what's going to happen in the future. So he's going to give three examples from the Old Testament. Three extreme examples of the Old Testament where God judged. And then he's going to give two examples of how God saved people in the midst of that judgment. So Peter's point is, listen, God did this in the past, especially in the Old Testament, and these Old Testament pictures of judgment and salvation are pictures of future judgment and salvation when the time comes. And, and so we have three examples that all start with if. If this, if this, if this, and you've got to wait all the way to verse 9 to get to the then, okay? So let's begin in verse 4. For if, these are if-then statements, if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Second if statement, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, who he brought when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Third, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Finally, verse 9 Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Three examples of how God judged in the Old Testament. The first example is wicked angels. So in verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, okay, angels when they sinned. I don't think, and most scholars don't think that Peter's talking about the rebellion in heaven that happened before time. Most scholars believe Peter's going back to Genesis chapter 6, where something happened. And even that's kind of controversial. So this is kind of a difficult difficult interpretation. So I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, you find out what happened on the earth in the days leading up to the flood. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he's flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Then Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, what's going on here? Who are the sons of God that had sexual relationships with the daughters of men? There's a lot of different views, but historical Jewish understanding of this and the early church understanding of this and the predominant view of this, the traditional view, is that the sons of God were actually fallen angels, demons, who came to earth had sexual relationships with human women and produced an ungodly demonic offspring called the Nephilim or these giants. Again, I can't be dogmatic on this, but it almost sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? But are there other strange things that happen in the Bible? The parting of the Red Sea, the sun stood still in Joshua, the axe head floated, Jesus fed 5,000, Lazarus was raised from the dead Jesus turned water into wine so what is happening here is this is satan's attempt to corrupt the lineage to prevent the messiah from coming and so these angels is what peter's probably referring to these wicked angels left heaven came to earth had sex with women and produced a half a half human half demonic offspring called the nephilim The word Nephilim in the Hebrew means fallen ones. Those who lost their position as angels in heaven and fell to earth and became the demonic offspring. The word can also mean giants. These were the mighty men of old, the Giborim. Okay. Where are these fallen angels now? What does Peter say? Verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into... Does anybody have a different thing besides hell? Does some of your manuscripts say Tartarus? Tartarus? Or have a footnote that says Tartarus? Footnote. Yeah. Tartarus is actually the Greek word there. It's not the, the word for hell in the Greek language is Gehenna. Peter does not use Gehenna. He uses Tartarus. And you wonder, why does he use Tartarus? Tartarus was, in Greek mythology was the place of the dead. And so many scholars believe that Peter was using a Greek term that they would be familiar with to understand hell. So these demons, if you will, are in gloomy chains of darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, what do we know eventually happens to Satan and his angels at the final day? They're cast into the lake of fire as the final place of judgment. I don't think what Peter's saying here is that these demons are literally in chains, like bound in the sense that they're just out there. Well, 2 Peter Uh chapter 2. I'm talking to myself. I think we started 2 Peter chapter 1. I think the... the I'm going to delete this. I think this failed. It said um, broadcast failed, so, and it just popped me back up. That's really weird. That's really weird. Okay, so let just won't worry about that. So I think when Peter talks about them being in gloomy chains of darkness to be kept until the time of judgment, I think it's in a symbolic way where it's the sense that demons are not free to roam however they want. God has sovereignty over how demons even operate. They don't have free reign of the earth. They have a limited sphere of operation. Because it says they're awaiting the judgment. So they're they're not judged yet. They're they're in those chains awaiting the judgment. But notice the key word there in verse 4. If God did not spare them. God did not... Spare these angels. Do you realize that there are two falls in the Bible? There's the fall of the angels and there's the fall of man. For the fall of angels, God did not provide redemption, God did not provide salvation, God did not provide a way for them to have a second chance. And the fall of man, what did he do? He sent Jesus. To redeem us. So when these did not, when God did not spare them, they sinned beyond repentance. In other words, God did not provide salvation for fallen angels the way He provided salvation for fallen humans. He did not spare them, He immediately put them into chains of gloomy darkness awaiting judgment. Risa, did you have a question? Yeah. No, so if they're like still kind of like on earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want you. To, I mean, don't think of. Maybe it's a literal dungeon, and they're there with literal chains. I think it's more of a metaphorical right. idea because we know demons are active. Right. Um, I think it's metaphorically they can't go beyond what God ordains them to go beyond. But they're they know their time is short. They know the end. They are real. They know that they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. They can try they can try, they're can they under the rule of Satan. So Satan's going to direct them to where he wants them to go. Um, and we don't know how many of these are. You know, the Bible in Revelation says a third of the angels fell. What the actual number is, we don't know. The Bible does teach the reality of demons and angels. Fallen angels, otherwise known as demons, and then holy angels. Okay? But the point here is that God judged angels that rebelled. That's that's example number one. That's angels. What's example number two? Example number two is the flood generation during Noah. Verse five, if he did not spare, now there's the word again, God, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. It's important that Peter brings up a flood because what was the only time in the history of the world where God judged the entire world? The flood. There were small judgments. We'll look at one here in just a moment. But the only time God judged the entire world was in the flood. And so that's a picture of a future worldwide judgment to come. The final judgment will be worldwide. But I want you to notice something here. What does Peter kind of insert in there? In the midst of judgment, God preserved who? Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. So in the midst of judgment that came upon the entire world, one man and his family were saved. They were preserved. Now, interestingly, Peter's the only person here in the Bible that calls Noah a preacher or a herald of righteousness. What does it mean that Noah was a preacher or a herald of righteousness? it means that he was announcing a message of warning to the people that a flood would come. Had people at that time ever seen rain? What does the Bible tell us how many years it took to build the ark? It took 120 years for him to build the ark. So by constructing the world, he was condemning the world. I mean, constructing the ark, he was condemning the world. In other words, the building of the ark was a visual object lesson that Noah preached for 120 years. We aren't given details about how Noah did that. I'm not sure. Is he up there banging a hammer and saying, repent for the time is coming? You know, we don't know what Noah said. The Bible doesn't tell us. All it says is Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. Who knows? Could have been as people were walking by and seeing him build this big structure. they would never seen rain. they would never seen a boat. What are you building, Noah? Well, there's a flood coming. What's a flood? I don't know, but it's coming and it's going to destroy the world. You need to repent and be right with God. 120 years of doing that. Okay. Here's the amazing thing about that. Think about God's patience. It's amazing to me that even with the profound wickedness that characterized the world at that time, God still in His patience and kindness gave them 120 years to repent. They had They had an opportunity to hear the message and repent and believe for 120 years. From when Noah started building the ark to when he finished the ark, that was his preaching ministry. 120 years preaching ministry. Think about that. You're preaching for 120 years as you're building that ark. God tells us in Romans 2, 4, Do you presume upon the riches in kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But what do we know happened? Did anybody repent? Their wickedness was so bad that God did not spare the ungodly. But He did save one family. A picture of judgment and salvation. God judged the world, but saved His people. One day, God is going to judge the world and save His people. The same way, not in the same way with water. We'll talk about that next week, but with fire. So, example one is fallen angels that God did not spare. He judged them. Example two is worldwide flood. God did not spare them. Example three, Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Interestingly, in the original language, it's funny when you start studying the Greek here, the word turning to ashes is the Greek word catastrophe. It's the Greek word katastrophe. So it was a catastrophe that was turning this town into ashes. And it says here that they became extinct. They became extinct. They They were condemned to Extinction. You go back to Genesis 19, 24, and 25. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. It was a catastrophe that led to condemnation. But notice what he says there. Why did God do it? making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. God says, listen, my judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what's going to happen in the future. Did What promise did God make to Noah after the flood with the rainbow? I will never again flood the entire earth. So God will not destroy the earth by a flood. How is God going to destroy the earth? We'll find out next week in chapter three. With fire. How did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? With fire. Okay. Now, who was rescued in Noah's flood? Noah. Okay. Who's rescued? Who does not get destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah? But who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot. Okay, so in verse 7, we see that Lot was rescued from the destruction in the same way that Noah was rescued from the flood. It says there in verse 7, And if he rescued Lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You may have a little problem, like, why is he called righteous Lot? You know what happened to Lot later on? Well, he got, his two daughters got him drunk and committed incest, and he bore the son Moab that became um, a really bad guy in the life of the Moabites. So I think what Peter's saying here is in comparison to the wicked homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was righteous in that. He did not engage in that. As a matter of fact, he was bothered by it. What does it say there? In verse 7, he was greatly distressed, greatly distressed at the sensual conduct of the wicked. What was the sensual conduct of the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis 19, 4 and 5 But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. What's going on here? The angelic visitors come. They meet Lot. They go into the house. All the men of the city, every single man and boy and young man, old man, young man, they surround the house, and what do they want to do? Bring out those two men so that we can gang-rape them, so we can have homosexual relationships with them. And it says Lot was disturbed by that. I mean, obviously, anybody would be disturbed by that. So we have these if statements, if statements, if statements. If God did not spare angels, if God did not spare the world in the flood, if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but if God saved Noah, and if God saved Lot... We get to the then, if then, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He gives two ways um, to the conclusion of this if then. Two conclusions. What's the first conclusion? The Lord knows how to protect and save the godly in their trials. If God saved Noah and God saved Lot, what's God going to do to us as believers on that final day if we're still alive? He's going to save us. I mean, ultimately, we're all going to be saved as believers. But at the same token, God also will judge the ungodly for their sin. Verse 9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until what? The day of Judgments, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Let me ask you guys a question. Stop and just ask a question. What becomes a huge temptation when you live in a culture that is godless, like Sodom and Gomorrah, which celebrates overt sexual immorality and rampant greed? What's the temptation? Can't beat them? Join them. Okay. So is our culture one that could be a culture that celebrates overt sexuality and rampant greed? Is there a danger of saying, being this Christian thing, is way too tough in a culture like this. I'm just going to bail on the Christian thing and live like everybody around me. It's called apostasy. It's, there, there's, there's a danger of following, following those who are leading the way. Luke 8.13 talks about the parable of the soils. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and then in the time of testing, they fall away. I don't think they were truly saved because they had no root. They had no true salvation. They had a false faith for a while, but then when the time of testing came, what do they do? They fall away. But we have a promise here from God in the examples of Noah and of Lot we have a promise that for those who are truly God's children, He will be faithful to preserve them through trials and temptations by sustaining them to the end. We've been talking, we talked about this Sunday, First um, Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we talked about this in the men's study this week, so it's all over my head. That's why these verses keep popping up. 1 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, God is faithful to save His people and sustain them to the end in the midst of ungodly cultures. Another mark of a false teacher we're going to see in verse 10. The main sin of these false teachers is a passionate lust that has no regard for the lordship of Christ. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, they hate authority. They don't want Jesus as Lord telling them how to live. They don't want to submit to His rule over their life. They want to be in charge. In other words, they have abandoned any idea that they will be accountable on the last day. They've seduced their followers into thinking the same. So their entire attitude is that of sexual immorality, greed, and no regard for the authority of Christ and His Word to dictate their lives, and they're leading others down that same path. We're going to engage in sexual immorality. I'm going to do this for greed and live however you want. Don't worry about the lordship of Christ because there is no final judgment. Okay, So those are three examples. Now, verses 10 through 16, or 10b, the character of these false teachers, he's he's going to begin to just kind of expound what these guys are like, or gals. Um, So let's just read 10 through 16, 10b. The ESV has broken it up there, the paragraph. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in mind and power, do not pronounce the blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. They're bold. They're arrogant. They don't tremble at, as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I have no idea, and a lot of scholars are wondering, like, what are the glorious ones? What, what's going on here? Is he talking about angels? Let me just give you my best guess. Verses 10 and 11 are very difficult to understand, and I'm not sure I fully have a grasp on it but somehow these false teachers had a warped view of both angels and demons. Think about it this way. What did that Peter passage or what did the Timothy passage say? In later times, people will will follow teachings of demons. I think in other words, in their heretical teachings and godless lifestyles, these false teachers were blinded to the fact that they were actually being influenced by demons. Now here's a thing that saddens me, bothers me, frustrates me. You guys tell me what's worse. What's worse, a person who is blinded by Satan and is embroiled in false teaching and they're just ignorant, or a person who knows exactly what they're doing and they're used by Satan to lead others astray and they know exactly what they're doing. point is, some people are into false teaching out of ignorance. Some are leaders in doing it, in knowing exactly what they're doing. Both of them are sad to me because they're both blinded. But what makes me more upset is the one that's knowingly doing it and leading others into that. And what does verse 12 say these teachers are acting like? Brute animals. <laughs> irrational animals what do animals do they act only on instinct what happens when your dog's in heat what's all your dog think about go find a leg to hump okay i mean i hate to be crass but i mean all the dog can think about is you know and basically what he's saying is these guys have no real conscience they're like irrational sensual animals walking around just acting on instinct And he he gives an irony there. He says, really, they're, they're born to be caught and destroyed. It's like they're being hunted down, and then they're going to be destroyed. They have no idea what they're talking about. Look at verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. The wages of sin is death. What does Galatians 6, 7 through 8 tell us about wage or what you receive back if you sow to sin. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. They're going to reap destruction. They're going to reap what they sow. And look at verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They can't even wait till night to engage in their ungodly behavior. They they just they, they want to get, get it done right now. They don't even hide it. You know, Isaiah 5, 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning if they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Uh, they don't care what time of day it is. They just want to engage in the sensuality. And then he says at the end of verse 13, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Most scholars, when Peter's talking about feasting with you, it's probably the Lord's Supper. They may even have led the Lord's Supper, service, while at the same time acting deceitfully and pursuing their own pleasure. In verse 14... They have an endless appetite for sexual sin and they're always on the lookout to seduce those who are not mature in the faith. What does it say in verse 14? They have eyes full of adultery. What's insatiable mean? Insatiable for sin. They can't get enough of it and they entice unsteady souls. Okay. In other words they may have looked at every woman as a candidate for illicit sex. What did, Job 30, what did Job say in Job 31.1? I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, 28, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. That word "entice" maybe your translation uses the word "seduce." Comes from the world of fishing, using a bait, or in hunting, using a snare to trap an unsuspecting fish or an animal. Where, where are they going after unsteady souls? What's an unsteady soul? Somebody who's not mature in the faith. Somebody who's struggling. That's who they go after. Second Timothy talks about this. Second Timothy 3, 5-7. through These people have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Do you know how... These televangelists creep into households and capture weak women. Okay, if you look at most of the people who follow televangelists, and I'm just being honest here, they're usually single women who are poor and they're waiting for their miracle. They're waiting for that breakthrough and they're going to give all their money to this televangelist. And he's going to creep he's not going to walk up and open the door and get in their house, but how's he going to creep into their house through the airwaves? And he's going to prey upon them. He's going to try to seduce them, entice them, to give them all his money. So these guys entice unsteady souls. Verse 14 They have hearts trained in greed. Trained. That's where we get the word gymnastics in the Greek language. But but it's not trained in godliness. They've gone to the gym and worked out in greed. They're really good at greed. They can do a lot of reps, heavy reps in greed. They can do burpees in greed. They can do power lifts in greed. What does Timothy tell us, 1 Timothy 4, 7? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train, same word there, train yourself for godliness. And what does Peter call them at the end of verse 14? Accursed children. Children of wrath. They're under God's curse. Now, in verse 15, Peter's going to give another Old Testament example. Balaam, Balaam, who went astray and was greedy in sin. Balaam was a man that led Israel into sin. Proverbs 2, 12 15 says this, Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who's devious in their ways. What does it say there about Balaam? Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. These false teachers have gone astray. How have they gone? They've gone the way of Balaam. Now, if you aren't that familiar with your Old Testament, let's talk about Balaam. What was Balaam's sin? Balaam was used by Balak, the king of Moab, to entice the Israelites with the seductions of the women of Moab and Midian to engage in adultery and fornication with pagan nations. Numbers 25, 1 through 3. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Who led them to do that? Balaam was instrumental in doing that, leading them astray. Numbers thirty-one sixteen also tells us that, behold, whoops, behold, these of Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. What was Balaam's advice? Go whore yourself out to pagan women and live ungodly lives of sexual immorality. What are these false teachers telling these people to do? There's no day of judgment. There's no consequences. You go have as much sexual immorality as you want because you're not accountable. They're false teachers. That's what Balaam gave the advice to Israel to do. But then, what's the funny story about Mr. Ed? Mr. Ed. guys know the story of Balaam? Look at verse 16. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You remember that story? The rest of the story of Balaam. The donkey speaks and actually rebukes Balaam for his transgression. A talking donkey had to rebu- had to rebuke this prophet. If you remember the story, you know he. He keeps the donkey wants to go different ways because the, the the angel of the Lord standing there with the sword and he hits the donkey and the donkey like why are you hitting me and then, whoa whoa you're talking to me so you know the, the donkey starts talking and rebuking him but notice what Peter says there at the end of verse sixteen the donkey restrained the prophet's madness now does that mean that Balaam was literally um, mentally insane No, basically he was saying was that he had gotten so engrossed as a false prophet into false teaching um, it was basically like madness okay now that's the character of these false teachers now in verses 17 through 22 we're going to see the false teachers impact on others so we've given example so we got four old testament examples fallen angels in genesis 6 the flood Sodom and Gomorrah, Balaam. Now he's going to talk about how these teachers impact others. So let's pick up in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Verse 17, waterless springs. They promise life by giving water, but they only bring dry, barren, waterless, false teachings that blow away like the wind. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic on this, but verse 17, I have an opinion. This is my opinion, so I could be wrong, but so this is this is Pastor Sean's opinion. When Peter says utter darkness has been reserved for them, this is just my opinion. I believe there's a hotter, darker place in hell for false teachers than there are just for the normal person in hell. So let me give you an example. The pagan in the deep dark jungles of Africa who's never heard of Jesus and dies and never accepts Christ as savior. Or let's say a person that you know lived their whole life in America and never trusted Christ for salvation, they're gonna be in hell, right? Okay. So non believers are gonna be in hell. But I think that those who are these false teachers that are leading other people astray, their judgment in hell is gonna be more severe and they will be in utter darkness. Now, this is just my opinion. The only substantiation I have for that is this passage here. Jude talks about it. But Jesus makes a statement. He says, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you, tired Sidon. So Jesus tends to speak of degrees of punishment. Um, And so just think about it. What's worse? A person who doesn't know the truth and dies and goes to hell versus a person that knows the truth, has abandoned the truth, is living as a false teacher and leading other people astray. The second one's worse. Now, both of them are going to be in hell. My opinion, again, it's my opinion, is that the false teacher is going to be in utter darkness, darker darkness, a worse punishment in hell because of their responsibility. That's why James 3.1. Let's turn to James 3.1 real quick. It's not in your notes, but just turn there. It just popped into my head. James three one, just a few few books back. What does James three one say? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter, will be judged with greater strictness. i just talking about normal teachers, if regular. Godly teachers are judged with more strictness than your average Christian. How much more an ungodly teacher, a false teacher, being judged with more strictness in hell? That's just my my opinion. I I think it's probably true, but I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. Let's go back to 2 Peter 2, verse 18. They speak loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They speak boastful. They speak like they know what they're talking about. And again, what are they doing? They're they're enticing. They're seducing others to join in their passions of the flesh. Now, here's the thing that's really, really sad about this in verse 19. What are they promising in verse 19? They're making a promise to these people. They promise them what? What? Hey, freedom. Hey, there's no constraints here. You can live however you want. There's no consequences. There's no day of the Lord. There's no day of judgment. Live however you want. You're once saved, always saved. You're forgiven. You're not going to lose your... You know, just live however you want. They promise freedom. But what does he say? Here's the irony. In their desire for Sexual freedom—they in fact become what slaves. Look at verse nineteen. Look at it very carefully. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are what slaves, bond servants of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. What's the false lie of the devil? What's the false lie of these false teachers? There's great freedom in sin. That's the Bible teach. There's great bondage in sin. So these guys are promising a bill of goods that's not any good. They're promising them freedom, but really they're, they're bringing them bondage. Romans 6, 20 through 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What were you really getting? You're free. Actually, when you were a slave of sin, you thought you were free, but actually what you're getting is death. Now, in verses 20 through 21, Peter gives a very harsh judgment on these guys. I'm saying guys, I'm assuming they were men. What does he say? If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them for the first. What's he saying there? What's the last state worse than the first state? What's the first state? The first state is their life as a non-believer. He's basically saying, quote-unquote, as an unregenerate non-believer, and then you, quote-unquote, become a Christian Christian, not really, but fake it, and then you apostatize and fall away. What's worse, the life of a non-Christian or the, the falling away after you've already known the truth? What's worse? He says the second. So here's Peter's point. As bad as life is living as an unregenerate person enslaved to the sin and to the world, it's far worse to have made a false profession of faith and then apostatize and fall away by rejecting the truth, embracing heresy, living in flagrant sin, and seducing others to follow. What does he say? It would be far better for them to have never what? What's verse 21? It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back it would have been better for them never to have made that profession of faith. It would have been better of them just to continue to live as a lost person. Now, as a lost person, are they going to go to hell? Yes. But he's saying it's better for them to just to remain lost than to have actually done this and um, turn this on to... Sorry. Um, so it would have been far worse. Now, how do we know they're not Christians? Because all along, he keeps talking about their destruction. But look at verse 22. It's a proverb. Like a dog returns to his vomit, and a pig returns to the mire. Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. What's the point here? What's the disgusting irony that he's talking about here? These false teachers who have renounced the faith have only returned to what is disgusting, sinful, and corrupt. Yet they find the filthy sin more attractive and appetizing than the true gospel, the way of righteousness. They are showing their true nature. So let me ask you guys a question. I brought it up at the very beginning. Can a genuine believer commit this grave sin of apostasy? The short answer is no. A true believer cannot. What does Peter say in 1 Peter? 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's Peter saying there? If you're truly born again, God will promise to faithfully guard you, keep you, protect you, persevere keep you to the end. You will not fall away from the faith. Now, I'm going to give you a long statement from the 2nd London Baptist Confession of 1689. Some of the information that we brought into the proposed doctrinal statement, a lot of it came from the London Baptist Confession of 1689 because it's a lot more comprehensive on some of these doctrines. But chapter 17 on the perseverance of the saints, I'm going to read this. It's kind of some old language, but this is the best definition of what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. Okay. So here's what it says, paragraph one. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, unto can neither can neither totally nor finally. Fall from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Let's stop right there. A categorical statement that we believe in Emmanuel. Those who are truly saved can neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace but will persevere to the end. But there's some caveats that he gives here. From which source he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the spirit unto immortality. In other words, God's going to work in us the fruit of the spirit, the graces to continue to live a life of repentance. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off the foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan. So what's going to happen to you as a Christian? You will have many storms and floods rise against you in your life. And Satan and the temptations will come upon you. Will those temptations of Satan, will those trials move you away from your salvation? The confession says no. The sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation. That's from the first Peter passage we just read. Where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. It's a categorical statement. If you're truly saved, God has truly called you, you're genuinely born again, you can either totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, even in the midst of trials, temptations, um, Satan coming at you, God will preserve you, God will protect you. Okay, paragraph two. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from which all arises, also, uh, also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Basically, what the chapter two, or paragraph two is saying is that it's not up to you and your own power to keep yourself saved. God will ensure because He elected you, He saved you, He called you. God doesn't change. God will work in you to make sure that you make it to the end. But Your your final salvation does not rest upon you. It rests upon God. But here's the one that we need to understand. Paragraph 3. And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. As a true believer, you may from time to time actually fall into a grievous sin, a big time sin. And you may stay there a while. And you may grieve the Holy Spirit. And you may have to, you come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened, their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ to the end. That's an important caveat in the, in the confession because what it's saying is, Just because we believe that once saved, always saved, eternal security doesn't mean that believers may fall into seasons of major sin. But what's God going to do? God's going to, in His providence, discipline you and bring you back to repentance, to where you will come back and you won't fully and finally and totally fall away from the faith. So the issue then is... When you look at a person who's in a period of rebellion, you've got two things you've got to ask yourself, okay? The Arminians will say that person lost their salvation and there's no hope for them to come back. We at Emmanuel would say if they're truly saved and they are in a period of of major disobedience... God will eventually bring them back in His time and His way if they're genuinely saved. Here's the problem for us. What can we not see? We can't see their heart. We can't see the end game. All we see is the snapshot moment. What's in the moment? The disobedience. Now, there's one of two things you can do. You can fret, you can worry, you can despair, Or you can pray for God to bring them to repentance. If they're not a believer, what do they need to do? Repent and believe. If they are a believer, what do they need to do? Repent and believe. So either way, they still need to be doing the same thing. Trusting in Christ, repenting. And so I always tell people who see somebody in a period of disobedience, realize it's not the end of the story. You're seeing a snapshot If they're truly saved, God will bring them to the end. If they're not saved, pray for their salvation and God can do a miracle to bring them to himself. So never lose hope. Okay? With these people though, back here in 1 Peter, it almost sounds like they've sinned beyond repentance. Now, I'm not going to say that because there's always hope unless you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and we'll talk about that's a totally different, whole different discussion. But... John tells us this about false professors. 1 John 2:19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they are all not of us. What's what's John saying? They played a good game. They looked like they were believers. They faked it for a while, but they left. If they had continued and stayed and persevered, then they would have shown their true colors. But because they left and bailed, it shows that they weren't truly saved. Now let's make this practical in the last few minutes we have together. What is the bottom line? The bottom line is this. In the final analysis, these false teachers who fell away were never really saved in the first place and showed their true nature They did not persevere to the end because they were not truly saved. What's the the warning for us? What's the warning for us today? As believers in this room, let me give you four warnings or four principles or four things to think about. Number one, you personally need to be so immersed and saturated in the word so that you will have the discernment to distinguish between true and false doctrine. You personally need to be in your Bible so much that you can sniff it a mile away when false teaching comes because you know your Bible. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You can train your discernment. How do you train your discernment? By constant practice. How do you constantly practice it? By reading, by studying, by being in the Word, by sitting under sound teaching, by immersing yourself in the Scriptures yourself personally so that you personally don't fall prey to false teachers. So so number one is you personally. Okay, number two, as a faithful member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, pray diligently for your elders and leaders to stay both doctrinally sound and morally pure. Okay, not only... Immerse yourself in the Word so that you personally are are growing and and discerning, but pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, to this young pastor, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine. And so I would ask you to pray diligently, for your elders, for your leaders, for your pastors, that we would be both doctrinally sound and morally pure as the leaders of this church. Number three, pray diligently for your fellow believers to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. Pray not only for yourself, pray for your leaders, but pray for other believers around you. Uh, Ephesians 4, 13-15. Until we all pray for each other that we would grow we would be solid we wouldn't be mature, immature being tossed to and fro on the waves so so saturate yourself in the scriptures pray for your leaders and pray for each other and then number 4 just a, just another warning realize that the majority and I'm not being I'm not I'm not exaggerating here realize that the majority of christian media that is satellite internet radio etc shows a lack of discernment and may pr- promote false doctrines and, I, and I'm really serious about the majority. I hate to say that. You've got to be very, very discerning on what you take in from the Internet, from Facebook, from satellite TV, from the radio. You need to have your antennas always up. Paul prays in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, that you would be filled with discernment. So false teachers are real. They're going to be around. They're going to twist and distort and seduce. You've got to be on guard against that. You've got to pray against that. You've got to pray for your leaders, pray for yourselves, pray for our church. No church is immune to false doctrine. Thankfully, the Lord has protected Emmanuel Baptist Church from that. And I attribute that to His grace alone because we at any time could fall prey to false doctrine if not for His sustaining grace in our lives and the faithfulness of our elders and our leaders and, and, our, and our peoples. Any questions or comments or observations as we close tonight on Second Peter chapter 2? Clear as mud. Just real quick I want yeah. to ask you, what if Pastor Sean, you you had a little bit of experience yourself with the cult people yeah. that mm-hmm. were around. Mm-hmm. So how do you, where do you think they fall in to that? Well, here's the thing about that cult, okay? What they are teaching is what I would consider a damnable heresy because they've gotten God wrong and they've gotten the gospel wrong. And I told them that. I said, you're believing a false God and you're believing a salvation by works. And that's, to me, those are two big things. Is the leader of that church more accountable than the followers? Yes. There's a leader of that cult that's leading all this, that's teaching them that. He or whoever he is, has a higher accountability. I can't look into their hearts to see where they are, but if they continue in that teaching and don't repent and come out, and come to the truth, then they are headed for eternal judgment. But that doesn't mean they can't repent. Because when I talked to them, I told them, I said, you guys need to repent. I said, I love you. You're being deceived. You need to repent. And there's, I mean, and God can do that. I mean, think of Paul. He was a he was a blaspheming heresy before God saved him, and I mean, so we don't want to ever think that God can't save the worst of sinners. He can, but it's just like anything; they've got to repent and come out of it. Sometimes being in cults and false teachings is a lot harder because there's so much deception and so much indoctrination and so much stuff there. It's hard to get out of that. Yeah, they're very they believe. yeah they're very sincere and they're very um, committed to what they believe. Muslims are very radical Muslims that, you know, suicide bombers, they're committed to what they believe. So there's a lot of people that are committed to false teaching. So the sincerity of your belief is not what makes it right. It's the actual content of the truth and in, in the, in the, in the, in the, the one true God in Jesus.